0: Hello and thank you for listening to our iStart PIA Relay podcast series brought to you by NIHR Dementia Researcher. iStart is a professional society and part of the Alzheimer's Association representing scientists, physicians and other dementia professionals active in researching and understanding the causes and treatments of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In this five-part series, we've asked members of iStart professional interest areas to take turns at interviewing their colleagues and being interviewed themselves. Confused? Don't worry, it'll all become clear as the week progresses. We'll be releasing one of these podcasts every day in the build-up to the Alzheimer's Association International Virtual Conference to showcase the work of iStart PIAs. Thank you for listening.
1: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I am Cecilia Samieri. I am a researcher in epidemiology. I work at uh, the French National Institute for Health, which is called the INSERM, and I chair the Nutrition and Metabolic Disorders, PIA. Today, I am delighted and very happy to be talking with Dr. Sitske Sikes. Hello, uh, Sitske. Can I start by asking you maybe to introduce yourself and, and tell us uh, which PIA you are involved with?
2: Yes, of course. And congratulations on pronouncing my name so well because it's the, the most difficult name ever. It's a typical Dutch name, but you did very, very well. So, uh, I'm, I'm Sietzke, I'm an uh, assistant professor at the Alzheimer Center Amsterdam of the Amsterdam University Medical Centers and the Department of Clinical Neuropsychology of the VU University. Uh, I have a, a background in, in clinical neuropsychology and in epidemiology and I'm involved in two PIAs actually. Uh, I chair the PIA for the non-pharmacological interventions, and uh, I'm also involved in the PIA for subjective cognitive decline, where I'm the chair elect.
1: Great. So I saw you had a very rich background with, you moved a little bit for a postdoctoral position in Paris, actually, with people that I know. And then to Boston, to Harvard Medical School. And I saw as well that you were very much interested in cross-cultural differences uh, in terms of neuropsychology. So I was wondering whether, so how this very uh, rich experience informed or changed or modified the way you were thinking about cross-cultural differences in your field.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, that certainly has enriched my my experience of how to look at cross-cultural differences. Uh, Because in my uh, research project, this was actually my PhD project where I looked into the measurement of everyday functioning. And uh, during my first, uh, no, it wasn't my first, but during my first presentation at AIC, I presented the work we had been doing in developing a new measurement tool for everyday functioning. And I was approached by someone from uh, Thailand, Thailand, who said, uh, "Oh, can we actually use your instrument?" And I thought, "Well, that's it. of course the everyday activities differ very much from what we see in our population." And uh, ever since, I've been intrigued by uh, cross-cultural differences and how we can apply measurement tools across cultures. So uh, for my postdoctoral fellowship I went indeed to Paris uh, and to Australia to study cross-cultural differences and I would have expected to uh, some degree that the difference uh, for example with Australia would be much bigger than with France. I thought well France is France so I but actually I observed that the cross-cultural differences were very big between the Netherlands and France and uh, I experienced that also because I I lived there for a while and uh, uh, yeah I thought it was very informative also because we started out with uh, doing a a translation of our uh, of our tool so it's a it's a questionnaire and we did a simple translation and then when I arrived with my translation in Paris, people like, I, I don't understand what it says. And then it turned out that the translator wasn't actually from France, but from Belgium. And there was a lot of Belgian France in the translation. So that was very, that I thought, ah, it's, it's never as easy as it seems. So ever since uh, when people talk about uh, a translation, I'm always like, well, beware. <laughs>
1: There's a lot of more work involved than you, than you think. That's really great. It's so interesting. Can tell us a little bit more about your research? Because you have been doing a lot uh, also in intervention, non-pharmacological intervention as well. So I would be interested to know more about that part as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, I uh, did indeed to start with the, the non-pharmacological interventions. Uh, that was actually research that um, I have been doing uh, specifically focusing on um, a lifestyle and the prevention of Alzheimer's disease. And then for people who experience memory complaints and uh, we just completed a, a big project where we looked at um, uh, specifically at uh, how... To inform people about lifestyle and lifestyle changes because when we think about lifestyle and prevention of Alzheimer's disease it isn't a simple solution it isn't a simple six-week intervention and then you're done then you're then your Alzheimer's risk is gone it doesn't work like that at least that's what we assume and that's obviously your research also where where lies the time window and when do you have to intervene and for how long. But my idea would be that with lifestyle changes it would be a very you need to accomplish structural changes. So we focused in this project on how we, uh, whether people are interested in information about lifestyle and the brain uh, and how we can present that information. And what I thought the most striking findings were actually that people were very interested in learning about lifestyle and the brain. And, uh, uh, but that they also didn't know where to look. So they would just Google information and they would have like the strangest associations uh, that you find on on Google. And they didn't, they were like, yeah, I probably these resources are not trustworthy, but I don't really know where to look. Um, and what we also so that we, we found that on the one hand, so that's very um, um, promising that people want to know about the information and they're, they're looking for that kind of information. But on the other hand, we found that um, you have to be really, uh, these interventions need to be tailored, they need to be personalized. So if you, uh, because it can also, have the opposite effect if you uh tell someone who is completely not physical active and you give that person the advice to go for a run then that's that's too far out so that doesn't work and can actually have the opposite effect of not wanting to have to do anything with the intervention at all so the information needs to be personalized in order to to have the effect and that. Um, I think that these were the, the main findings from that um, from that project, focusing on prevention.
1: All right. Is that the way you are thinking about the FINGER uh, study applied to your country, or is that a different project?
2: That's a different project, and actually the Dutch part of the FINGER study, uh, we're currently in the process of setting that up, and uh, I'm also involved in that. study, but this was specifically a study focusing on people who present with memory complaints. So the people with subjective cognitive decline. Uh, So I work in the Alzheimer's Center, which is a a memory clinic. And there we see about a third of the patients that we see have memory complaints, but their uh, cognitive performance is still completely uh, normal. So, there and from those people we really got the question okay but what can i do from a lifestyle perspective so these people we know have a need for information um, and uh, the finger study is of course more aimed at the general public but this was specifically that population from which we know that they have a need for information and also yeah it felt like if you uh, that you really want to offer them something as a clinician, that you do not want to say, yeah, you, you have to, you can do healthy lifestyle stuff, but you really would like to give them more
1: concrete advice. So in France, we have that issue. So clinicians told me that uh, in memory clinics, uh, there is less and le- there are less and less uh, early prodromal patients. I mean, people go to the clinics uh, really too late. And so it's quite difficult for people to set up, you know, uh, early uh, intervention trial, early trials, Mm -hmm. because the patients just don't go to the to the memory clinics. Maybe it's very different in your country because it's very country specific, the way the the way it is organized. But what is your feeling about that? Yeah.
2: Yeah. so the, the trend that we observe is actually that people come earlier and earlier uh so so that's indeed it might be a country specific um trend
1: maybe the physicians are really well informed in your country and just tell the people to go to the specialty center
2: yeah so uh i think that is indeed the case uh it's also our uh national patient organization works a lot on um on getting people informed Uh, So it could be the case that that's a a
1: difference, but I would think that in France, you would have the same. People tell that's not the case. People Mm. say that the physicians in France don't really believe that because we have no treatments, they are not really uh, willing to tell people to go to to the memory clinics to get a diagnosis. They would tend to say, okay, there is nothing to do Although we all know that it's not the case, there is a lot to do in prevention. But I mean, it's maybe a cultural thing as well. So it's an issue. I think it's an issue. Of course, uh, La Salpêtrière, where you worked, has a lot of really great uh, memory clinic with early patients. Yeah. But generally, I think in the whole country, it's more complicated.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it is a general awareness issue of um, of seeking help when it's still, uh, well, according to the recent insights, it's of course the earlier you are, the better. So it is awareness of uh, uh, being able to do something. And I think that is indeed a a shift in awareness that is necessary.
1: So maybe we can talk a little bit about the PIA now because it's very important. So how uh, does the work of your PIA Support your field, so you're involved in two P- different PIA's. So, so what, what what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the PIA,
2: uh, I think the the PIA really supports the uh, actually a lot of the research. So, for the uh, non pharmacological interventions PIA, uh, uh, during the scientific session, but also during the business meeting. Um, I think this was, this was two years ago, we had an extensive discussion about what, what non-pharmacological interventions actually are because non-pharmacological is just defining something by what it is not. So we had this whole existential crisis of what are non-pharmacological interventions. And based on that discussion, we gathered experts and really asked them um, Uh, about their interventions and to structure their interventions in a similar way um, according to a framework and then we also asked them to give an overview of their field based on uh, really systematic evaluations and uh, based on that we um, together we wrote a position paper and actually uh, people from the nutrition PR were involved as well yeah. Uh, Martha Claire Morris was very involved in, in setting up uh, the position paper. And um, we've also, it's, it's currently still under review, but we've uh, uh, decided to dedicate the paper to her memory uh, because she was very active in, in setting it up. And uh, so this was really a cross-PIA collaboration uh, on... Um, really trying to structure the non-pharmacological interventions and to to answer the question on uh, what it is and what it characterizes. And um, I think that is very... Uh, it will be a very important paper. And I think that uh, that is one way in how a discussion in the PIA led to uh, led to an, I think, important paper. <laughs> And uh, But another thing is for the non-pharmacological interventions, Pia, what we had was uh, we have this specific working group that is focused on methodological quality of non-pharmacological interventions. Uh, and that's also something that we found out when trying to characterize the interventions is that you have a lot of different interventions, but that the quality of the, uh, uh, the methodological quality mm-hmm. Uh, differs very much and it, it, it varies and it's very difficult to, um, to evaluate the level of evidence or to evaluate the, the evidence when the level of evidence is, um, uh, isn't is always comparable. Um, so we have a working group, the CIDR working group that has uh, focuses on the methodological quality and that also published the cocktail uh, tool and that's a website where you can evaluate the level of evidence for um, non-pharmacological interventions. Um, so these are really two efforts that lead to improving the quality of non-pharmacological interventions and the access to, to information about that. Um, and with regards to the subjective cognitive decline PIA, uh, that, uh, PIA was uh, well, actually, one of the the, the research was always um, the main focus of the PIA. So the PIA formed and immediately worked on um, uh, position papers. But in the PIA, uh, there a lot of researchers are getting connected throughout the PIA and also share data. Uh, we have quite a lot of publications coming out from the PIA, where people uh, used. Um, uh, data sets across countries. Um, so that is really uh, very much a research-focused uh, PIA. And I think that's, um, yeah, in both cases, the, the PIA is really helping to propel the research and the research quality and connecting people.
1: That's really interesting to see because you have two, PIA, two different PIA and, and the level of organization and development is quite different between both. Mm-hmm. So it really that according to the, the group of people who gather and according to the topic, you have really different kind of discussions inside. So it's really, it's really great. Yeah. So, what, so how could early career researchers join your PIA?
2: Um, well they they can join the PIA of course but um, if they want to be actively involved we always uh, are very keen on having young people involved in the in the PIA and here um, I can really recommend people to reach out Um, so for example, last year we had one of the uh, junior presenters in pia uh, reach out and say, hey, can I get involved? And now she's a student representative in RPIA. So I think that uh, really works. So we, we have two student representatives in RPIA, And um, what I like is that uh, they come up with the creative ideas on how to involve people in pia So um, this year we have, for example, a student awards and with the subjective cognitive decline, PIA, uh, we had a dinner organized uh, last year and also drinks after PIA day really to uh, connect people. And um, yeah, I think it's, um, it's one thing to be involved in the PIA, which I I think a lot of PIAs are really happy if someone reaches out and says, I'd like to be involved. Uh, I don't know about you, but I am always very happy when I hear people uh, say that. But it's also a way to connect to other young researchers. And uh, from my own experience as a a young researcher, it was actually during my first AIC, I went to a, a, a PIA meeting and because AIC is such a big conference, it was really nice to, to meet some people that were involved in the same field of research that I was. So I think it's really, a, yeah, a way to find your...
1: Uh... Yeah, and it's a good way to find your independence as a researcher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and what are your plans in two different PIAs for the next year? Do you have some specific, very specific goals
2: I think uh, we have some specific goals for this uh, AIC. So here we have uh, the uh, a scientific session, with, which will be available as a pre-recording, but we'll also have our uh, PIA chat. And on PIA day, we'll have a live Q and A session, and also uh, then we'll have the announcement of our student award winner. Uh, So that will be very exciting. That will be August 12th at 8 a.m. Central Time. And um, for the SEDPA, we will also have a live uh, live, uh, panel discussion uh, on August 5th, 8 a.m. And for the coming year, the very specific plans, uh, I think what we... Will uh, do this year again is to continue on our cross PI collaborations. So, uh, for both for the non-pharmacological interventions PI and for the subjective cognitive decline PI, we've hosted webinars together with the diversity PI, and in both cases that was a big success. So for the SCD PI, we also have a featured research session focused on SCD and uh, diversity issues. Um, For the non-pharmacological interventions, Pia, we'd also like to organize a featured research session for next year and um, we plan to have some open membership calls where people can join uh, the calls on our committee and uh, we've started um, uh, some webinar series of which the diversity uh, was the, the first one and we'll continue that Uh, probably, as long as we're still uh, stuck at home, webinars are suddenly a very attractive um, means to an end.
1: Wow, that's amazing. An amazing program. Well, thank you so much, Sitzke. It was really great to talk to you. Uh, It is time to end today's podcast recording. But before we go, I do have a final question for you. What advice would you give to any aspiring scientists out there who are thinking of looking into dementia?
2: Yeah, I found this the most difficult question ever. Uh, but um, what I would advise, yeah, and this is, I can only advise something on which I would, how I personally work. And that is to reach out to people because I think the uh, dementia research field is a very Friendly research field, and people are very keen on helping each other and uh, really working together on this big problem that we all really want to solve. So, I would say, if you want to know things and learn things, reach out to people and connect with them. Uh, and uh, that is because I think that you do science together, and together we can we can solve this.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Sitzke, for taking time to join us today.
0: Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. You can find details and profiles on today's panellists and information on how to become involved in iStart on our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk and also at alts.org forward slash iStart. We'll be back tomorrow with the next recording of in our iStart PIA Relay podcast series. Finally, please remember to subscribe, like and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify and all the other places where you find your podcasts. Thank you.